welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. So today, Phil and I will be exploring the philosophical overtones of a, like a true classic of weird fiction, Arthur Machen's short story, The White People. This is a story that I've, I've loved for a very long time. Um, Machen was one of H.P. Lovecraft's biggest influences. He's one of the four writers whom Lovecraft called the, the, the four great masters. So he, uh, the others were Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, and uh, Lord Dunsany. Each of whom could uh, get their own podcast episode, I think, Phil. These are all pretty fantastic yeah. writers. But today we're looking at Arthur Machen's The White People. But before we get into it, I'm just going to say a few words about Machen himself for listeners who don't aren't familiar with him. So he was born in uh, 1863. He was a son of an Anglican vicar. And uh, from a very young age, he had this fascination with the Welsh countryside where he grew up and the legends and lore that kind of permeated that place. And uh, when he moved to London as a young adult to become a journalist, he kind of took that fascination with him and started to write weird fiction that had um, was kind of inspired by that Celtic kind of twilight landscape that he grew up in. Uh, he was uh, he was fascinated by the occult, by uh, magic uh, and religion, um, but he chose to explore these themes through fiction, and um, his fiction stands to this day as one of the like the great um, examples of, of weird literature. Phil had the kindness to record a, a wonderful reading of the story, which you can find on our website. Uh, you may or may not want to listen to the story before our discussion. This is one of those stories that, that are almost plotless, and it, it just simply can't be spoiled. So you could easily listen to our conversation and then, uh, you know, read or, or listen to the story afterwards and, and it might even enrich your experience. I don't know. Maybe, Phil, could you like give us a bit of a summary of the story? Yeah, sure. So the story is in three parts. The central and by far the longest portion is called The Green Book. And it purports to be uh, the diary of a young girl who died like at age 16. And the book was found after her death in which she records her travels in ferry in this kind of other world. And it's framed by a philosophical discussion between a recluse named Ambrose, uh, somebody who, as Machen puts it, dozes and dreams over his books, and uh, Cotgrave, a kind of uh, just an ordinary young man who has come to this house in a London suburb to meet this uh, uh, strange hermit, mostly out of curiosity you get the sense that his friend told him that this guy was nuts and like come, you should come and check out this this lunatic um and then what happens as they get going as they start talking uh is that cotgrave becomes really fascinated by what ambrose is saying and what ambrose is saying is it's a long disquisition on sin and he argues that sin is quite other 
than what we usually take it to be. We ordinarily think of various crimes against persons as being sinful. And Ambrose insists that that's not the case, that sure, such actions can partake of sin, but what sin really is in its essence is something quite different from what we ordinarily take it to be. Um, These flanking conversations, these philosophical conversations between Ambrose and Cotgrave uh, occupy the beginning and end, but then there's this long middle section, the green book, and just how it looks on the page, it looks weird. Uh, Pages and pages go by without a paragraph break, and there's a sort of feeling of the green book as a kind of um, breathless, uh, barely rational account of somebody who has been traveling in very strange realms and doesn't even appear to understand how strange they are. Um, the story of the Green Book just kind of wanders between past and present, between fairy realms and the everyday human realm, um, and between things that seem that they've happened and things that we can't really know if they've happened. In fact, even the narrator seems confused sometimes about whether things are true or not, whether things really happen. And so the long central section of the white people kind of floats by in this sort of almost directionless haze. As as JF said at the beginning, this is a story that's almost impossible to spoil because there's hardly a story at all. It's this strange piling up of weird incident uh, that serves in a way that is never entirely explained as an illustration of what Ambrose means by sin. One thing that strikes me when I read this story, and I've, I've read it a few times now, um, in fact, I'll tell you about the second time I read this story, or actually had it read to me. Um, I listened to a, a, a LibriVox recording of the story while I was coming back from a hiking trip in Algonquin Park in Northern Ontario. And uh, I was so hypnotized by the voice of the story, by the, the narrator, um, and by the kind of stream of consciousness style of it, of her musings that uh, I cannot drive down that particular highway now without um, being overwhelmed by the feeling of this story. So I was really in the right mm. mood to listen to it, to take it in. And it, it, it transfigured the landscape almost like, you know, the narrator sees a transfiguration of the landscape when she goes wandering off into the woods and the stones start to take on anthropomorphic shapes and she starts to experience nature, a kind of transformation of nature into something uh, that is both semiotically richer and more significant and at the same time stranger and more alien. And I think uh, the effect comes through uh, because of the Green Book, the way that Machin uh, chose to tell the story. And uh, it's funny because, you know, Virginia Woolf and um, a few other modernists are usually, people usually think that they've invented the kind of stream of consciousness style, but this was written in the 1890s and it really has that modernist stream of consciousness style kind of down pat, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, it's funny because it, so you start reading it, you're like, oh, I kind of know what this is. And then after a while, they're like, wait a minute, I don't. Um, you know, there, in a way, the conversation between Ambrose and Cockgrave is almost like a version of the old Socratic dialogue, you know, where one voice in the dialogue, which is Cockgrave, is like the straight man, the reality anchor, the, you know, the, vo- the presumed voice of the reader. We sort of project ourselves into the story by means of Cockgrave because we're outsiders to the strange fellow and his weird way of, of thinking. 
and so we're all hearing it for the first time, just like Cockrave is. Um, and you know, in a kind of Socratic dialogue, you expect the the one the philosophical voice to lead his interlocutor and thereby the reader step by step through his arguments and towards some kind of conclusion. But in this case, that doesn't happen. There's so many digressions and apparent non sequiturs. Uh, that just kind of hang in our mind. They're never explained. They, they're not dispelled. Um, there are these kinds of gaps in the narration. So on the one hand, you sort of feel like, oh, this is one of those stories that's really a philosophical piece in the form of dialogue. But if it is, it's a very peculiar dialogue and a very peculiar philosophy. Uh, these, these, these moments, these little gaps or moments of lapse in the writing are almost like, I mean, to use a, mat, uh, a musical analogy, they're like unresolved dissonances, you know, right. like a dissonance just it hangs in the air and it doesn't resolve into like a major chord or whatever. Can you, can you give us some examples of, of these types of non sequiturs in the dialogue? Yeah. So at one point, um, Cockrave starts getting uh, a little impatient with the abstraction of Ambrose's discourse and keeps asking him for, uh, examples of sin or like what is sin and he uh he says well let me let me answer your question by asking you a question how would you feel if suddenly your cats and dogs started disputing with you in human tones or if the rose bushes sang a weird song or whatever he imagines a bunch of really strange things and then says that will give you some idea of what I mean by sin. And, of course, that gives me no idea, <laughs> not an idea. Uh, what it gives me is a mood, like this kind of strange juxtaposition, almost like a surrealist juxtaposition. The, like the, the um, what is, what's that famous line, the chance meeting of the umbrella and a telephone on the dissecting table? <laughs> like these weird kind of uh, these these uncanny collisions of incommensurate things, um, which nevertheless seem to have a kind of uh, weird power to them. Mm -hmm. That happens a number of times in Machen's story, um, and also like the very end, uh, the the very end of the story. He uh, Ambrose says, "For me, it is the story, not the sequel." which is strange and awful, for I have always believed that wonder is of the soul. And I love that last line, wonder is of the soul. I don't 100% understand what it means, but it sounds cool. I can't exactly express what that is. Right, I, I, I agree. And I think that Machen intended it this way, um, that the, uh, the framing device is, is actually much more a part of the heart of the story than, than we might be led to believe. It's not just a way to frame this journal he is even in the prologue and epilogue inducing in us the state of mind that he wants to um to provoke or to create through the story you know you mentioned um in our discussion before the recording you mentioned arthur Machen's nonfiction essay hieroglyphics a note upon ecstasy it was a it was a book that i read after i wrote the first draft of reclaiming art in the age of artifice and uh, had I read it before, uh, it would have played an instrumental role uh, in the book because it is very much kind of putting forward a thesis uh, that that resembles that of my book very, very closely. And I think that in The White People, we can see uh, the aesthetic theory that Machen outlines in Hieroglyphics at work. We can see him trying to do precisely what he says great art should do in that nonfiction essay. So what 
what Machen argues in uh, hieroglyphics is that the the point of distinction between great works of art and everyday middling works of of uh, of entertainment, you know, advertisements or you know, cheap dime novels or whatever. Yeah, well, cra- well yeah. crafted, well crafted, yeah. sort of disposable or flimsy. Right. What I would call artifice. Okay, just to have a term to define those two things. That he says that what distinguishes great works of art from these other things is the fact that great works of art um, induce in us a state of ecstasy. So what they do is they they kind of throw us out of the ordinary modes of consciousness that we normally operate in and connect us to a reality that is both deeper and much more mysterious than what we're used to. So art for him has a kind of magical function. It's a way, it's a technology for breaking out of the consensus trance of the everyday. And um, in the white people, everything seems geared towards moving us out of the of the ordinary into this this strangely alien yet somewhat bizarrely familiar pagan terrain i find it very effective some critics have have trouble with this story especially contemporary critics from today they they just don't get it they don't get the idea of the concept of sin they don't get the debate about sin they don't get what the little girl wants what's the plot what's the where is it all going I think that these um, stylistic shortcomings on Machen's part are intended and they, they, they're trying to get this particular effect, which is very difficult to get without breaking some rules, without including some rifts in the work, as you mentioned. That's right. That's something I feel like Machen has in common with other writers of the weird. Uh, you mentioned uh, a bunch of them, uh, M.R. James, um, uh, Blackwood. Who's the third one? Dunsany? Dunsany, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would add, you know, so one of my favorite writers of the weird, although I'm not sure that people categorize him as a weird fiction writer in the same way that Lovecraft or Machen are, um, Philip K. Dick. Right. Uh, and something that all of these writers, I feel, have in common is that they, of course, they want to tell you about something. But what they really want is to reach inside your skull and push the buttons. Um, they they don't want to just represent a weird reality. They want to instantiate it in their readers. And, you know, often I feel like when I'm reading Philip K. Dick late at night, uh, if I'm reading something that's really reality bending, like Ubik, I have this sort of feeling that almost like the walls are shifting around me, like there's some kind of undetectable but decided and and sinister change in the air in the light in the some it feels as if something everything has somehow everything has changed even though everything looks exactly the same it's a kind of paranoid feeling and it's sort of disquieting it's not exactly a pleasurable feeling and yet apparently i like it enough to keep reading um things that induce that feeling in me I have sort of feel, have a feeling that this is something that Machen was actually deliberately after in the white people. He's just trying to create uh, an environment, almost like fairy, for his readers to inhabit. He's trying to transmute um, our mental landscape in the same way that the physical landscape is transmuted in the narrator's experience when she's wandering through the woods and she enters fairy. Um it's not specifically referred to as fairy, by the way, in the story. This is what this is the word that Phil and I use to describe the world that she enters. But there's clearly a connection with uh, the 
the beliefs, the traditional beliefs of Celtic people. And, um, but yeah, and I think that, that the story itself, at least the work of art, according to Machen, should function as a kind of sacramental thing. And what I mean by sacrament is that it's a symbol that transforms the world. T.E.D. Klein, the great uh, obscure horror writer who's written just a few books, but the, and I still haven't read them, but I've heard that they're very, very good. Uh, he wrote um, about the white people in the Penguin Encyclopedia of Horror and the Supernatural published in the 80s. This is what he wrote about the story. He said, it remains the purest and most powerful expression of what has been called the transcendental or visionary supernatural tradition. Most other tales in that tradition, Blackwood's The Wendigo, E.F. Benson's The Man Who Went Too Far, and Machen's own The Great God Pan, merely describe encounters with the dark primeval forces that reign beyond the edge of civilization. The white people seems an actual product of such an encounter, an authentic pagan artifact. And uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, there's... There's something about that that expresses much more eloquently what I was trying to what I was trying to say a moment right. ago. It's like an insider's look at uh, a world that has relinquished all semblance of moral order, and um, because what happens in the story is the little girl as she so so it starts it's this sixteen year old girl writing about her experiences the earliest of which happened when they, she was about three or four years old. And um, it was under the tutelage of her nurse, a, a woman she refers to as nurse, who took care of her because she doesn't seem to have a mother. She seems to only have a father, and the father is very absent. He's a lawyer. He's in a study. Um, and so she's raised by this nurse, and this nurse happens to be what turns out to be some kind of witch. And then the little girl kind of innocently... Uh, um, you know, wanders into this dark world and then discovers some um, some very dark things. But she doesn't seem to be able to know the difference between right and wrong. She seems to be completely amoral in the sense that she just thinks it's all wonderful. You know, at the beginning, she sees these two white people. She calls them these are these would relate to the the fair folk of Welsh myth, right? These kind of like luminous uh, fairy beings who are noble but strange and 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 bizarre and alien. And she sees two of them kind of frolicking in this, by this pond, and she thinks it's just wonderful. But the, when she tells her nurse about it, the nurse is horrified that she saw this. So there's this weird ambiguity of what's what. We don't know if what she's experiencing is good or bad. It, it, it just feels fundamentally wrong. And that's what Machen does so beautifully in this story. He makes you feel like everything that's happening is somehow wrong. Yeah. And... Um, and that this little girl's becoming a great sinner, as Ambrose refers to her. He, she's becoming a great sinner without even knowing she's a sinner. Yeah. Well, it's that's one of the things that gives her long, somewhat aimless narration a slightly weird tinge, is that we're very used to, um, you know, when we're reading a story that we're having our reactions, our kind of our moral evaluation of whatever is being presented to us, that's kind of fed to us by the writer a lot of the time. Um, even even writers, I'm thinking like Lovecraft, who's constantly telling you about the feelings of loathing and repugnance yeah. <laughs> that um, some 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 monster leaves in the soul of the narrator. Uh, but the little girl doesn't seem to feel anything except uh, this kind of open-eyed wonder. So she narrates a story of a witch queen who. 
uh, kills, horribly kills all of her suitors with magic. And, you know, the witch queen is burned in the end. Um, and the little girl's main takeaway is just sort of like, geez, I wonder what it would be like to burn. What would it be like to be on fire? And sh she keeps sort of coming back to it, but in a way that almost seems like it gives her like a sexual thrill. Um, not what we would expect an ordinary response to a story like that might be. Isn't that the thing about the fairies? If you look at, if you like, if we just set aside for the moment Tinkerbell and the kind of neutered fairies that we grew up with, and we look at the actual beliefs, you know, the the, the original Irish, Welsh, Scottish um, ideas or conception of fairies. When the Welsh referred to the to the fairies as the fair folk, there's a euphemism in that. It's not because they're good that they're referred to as the fair folk. It's a way to placate them or to appease them by not offending them because if the fairies turn their attention onto you, you are doomed. They will wreck your life. Uh, fairies are neither good nor evil in the Celtic myth. They are completely amoral. Um, and I think that, that that's what's almost what Ambrose is getting at with sin, that sin is not so much just a bad or cruel act, but the kind of uh, abdication of the moral order altogether where uh, all of a sudden all that matters is the intensity of experience. Just like the little girl, just all she's interested in is how intense an experience can become. And there's no way for her to navigate this landscape she finds herself in uh, ethically. There's no, there's no even, the question doesn't even come up. Um, is this, does that, does that relate to the idea of fairies to you, Phil? Yeah, uh, this is sort of an interesting thing about fairies is you think about uh, morality in a dualistic way. It's good and evil. You've got angels on the one side and devils on the other. Um, but fairies are this wild card. They turn this into a triangle of like three separate points. There's good, there's evil, and there's mad. Right, exactly. Fairies are insane. Like it's not that they're evil it's just like there's an order of being so profoundly different from ourselves their motivations are completely opaque to us uh no, and they don't appear to have the slightest understanding of what makes us tick either um there's a great fantasy novel called jonathan strange and mr norrell uh and one of the major plot developments has to do with a character named the gentleman with the thistle down hair an otherwise unnamed fairy who one of the magicians unwisely enlists as a servitor um, and who causes enormous harm. And the thing about him is that he will do things where he thinks he's being nice. Like there's a character named Stephen Black who he really likes uh, and he wants to help Stephen Black. And so one of the things he decides he's going to do is to find out Stephen's real name because Stephen is a slave um, and uh, he had his real name taken from him at birth. And in order to do this, the gentleman with the thistle down hair just kills tons of people. You know, he, he does unspeakable cruelties. And it doesn't even occur to him that anything he's done is cruel because, I mean, he wants to find out a name. And, 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 and yeah, so you got to kill some people. Like, 
it just doesn't even register to him. And so, like, the fairies are just are capable of doing anything. It's just sort of like the Joker in that Batman film or, like, in, uh, you know, like, the Heath mm-hmm. Ledger Joker. Um, one of the reasons why that is such a great character is because it's the one time the Joker really felt like, oh, my God, he could just do anything at any time for any reason or no reason. And that's what the fairies are like. There's an old belief that the, the fairies are the, the angels that remain neutral when war broke out in heaven. So you had the you had Lucifer and his legions uh, who rebelled against God, and then you had the angels that stuck by God, Gabriel, Michael, and the lot. And uh, and then you had these angels that decided not to pick a side, and they were they, they were not cast down to hell, but they, they came down to earth and became uh, the fair folk, the fairies. These were strange creatures that you couldn't you couldn't ignore them. You had to recognize their existence. You had to leave a little corner of the field, like leave out a bowl of milk at night. Yeah, exactly for the house goblin. You had to do certain things to appease them, and if you didn't, then they would punish you um, for it. And they would do things like take children away and yeah. replace them with changelings, so that the mother would be nursing her baby, and everyone else but her could see that she was actually rocking a. a like a, just a tangle of thorns and roots or they give you a bag of gold and when you got home it was just a bag of coal they they need tribute of some sort they need recognition from us but we don't know why and we uh but we can't just stop believing in them because everything will go to hell you know actually there's uh and this is not an original thought um i think john keel was probably the first major um figure to to to, to make this argument but what you're characterizing as fairy and the fairy folk uh, is pretty much structurally is pretty much identical with a host of what we now call paranormal phenomena, uh, UFOs, the greys, uh, the various species of aliens that have entered a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, a popular lexicon. Um, just the sort of things you were, you were saying a moment ago, like they... They want something from us, but we don't know what. We don't know what their motivations are. Um, we don't understand how they think. Uh, you don't want them in your life because they will fuck you up. Um, there are a lot of parallels. Oh, there are, yeah. So some examples of modern, quote-unquote, extraterrestrial or alien phenomena that, that relate very directly to, to the fairy phenomenon uh, are the greys. Uh, who are like goblins or kobolds, the tall aliens, right? Because they're the greys and then they're the tall ones that look yeah. slightly different, the ones from Communion and all that, who are very much like the fair folk. Uh, the men in black, who are like the, you know, the, the, the character referred to as the man in black in, in, in folklore. So a kind of devil creature that makes a deal with you at the crossroads. And men in black are often seen riding in cars, which uh, evokes the idea of a road or travel. Um, it seems to me like, and you know, we're not the first to, like you mentioned, you mentioned John Keel, but there's also Patrick Harper and, uh, Jacques Vallée, a French ufologist who all look, when they looked at the UFO phenomenon closely, they noticed that there were so many weird logical discrepancies in it at the same time as there were many, uh, tangible signs that something had happened, that there was, there was a, a lot of, a lot, there were a lot of common features in the phenomenon from one person to the next. They couldn't dismiss it, but they couldn't also just 
settle for the nuts and what's called the nuts and bolts theory that these are just aliens from outer space that are coming to Earth. They thought, no, these, this is just a modern interpretation of something that's been going on on Earth for for eons. Uh, these encounters happen, and then you know they used to call them fairies. Now we call them aliens. This actually comes up in Machen's story in the White People. It does at the end in one of those gaps, one of those weird fissures that opens up in the the coherence of the the discourse. Ambrose is like, well, I trust you understand now what I meant by sin. <laughs> and, and neither the reader nor Cockrave has the slightest idea what the connection is. Or at least uh, it's it's never spelled out and it's not easy to pin down. I mean, there's just maybe a feeling of conviction that these are connected. But Machen is very deliberately avoiding, avoiding this, but uh, avoiding being explicit. But then Cockrave says, well, what do you think the little girl meant by nymphs? Because the last thing we hear about is the dark nymph coming. Um, and Ambrose says something like, well, I think that what she means by nymphs uh, are what we might call a process. One of, these, one of the processes that were understood by the alchemists and which modern day scientists are beginning to understand uh, coming at them by quite different means. Right. And uh, that I thought was a kind of an interesting an interesting thought, similar to what you're saying. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Sense absolutely. Of like, yeah, these things exist. We just have we, you know, and 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 perhaps in our day we uh, we we come up against them using conceptual tools that we have at hand. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, I, I I was fascinated with that little moment where Machen almost lift, raises the curtain and shows you what's behind it. Uh, when he when he lets Ambrose refer to these things as processes, because I think twice in the story Ambrose tells Cotgrave that the the kind of secret the connection lies in alchemy. The alchemists provide the bridge between the modern world and the ancient world, and this is precisely the insight that uh, that Jung came to decades later uh, in his own psychological work. So it's another instance where Machen is really prescient, although he wasn't exactly the only, um, thinker or writer at the time who referred to alchemy uh, as, um, as a useful, uh, kind of, uh, field of, of research. I mean, the idea of alchemy is bound up with the idea of ancient lost secrets, like sort of a true perennial wisdom that is safeguarded by a handful of initiates. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, you know, wisdom that goes back beyond the memory of mankind, um, and 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 this and there's a sort of this persistent trope in esoteric, uh, I don't know, an esoteric discourse that there's this sort of small handful of the elect of ascended masters who are working behind the scenes to safeguard humanity or you know protect us from evil or whatever um and alchemy is always sort of uh, wrapped up in that mythos that that idea of um a, a a true but unrevealed knowledge there's actually kind of an interesting story and this is a callback to our garmin bosia episode which was all about nuclear terror or nuclear fear um jacques bergier who's a nuclear physicist and hero of the resistance. Apparently, he, he, he sabotaged the Nazi effort to create an atomic bomb. Really? And uh, after, yeah, 
and my understanding is Nazis actually captured him and 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 tortured him, uh, but he survived the war and then uh, teamed up with uh, another writer to write Morning of the Magicians, which is. It was kind of a key book in the magical revival of the 1960s. Anyway, he tells a story about how in the 30s when he was working on nuclear science and they're trying to build an atomic bomb, there's a alchemist named Falconelli who in alchemical circles is really, really famous, wrote a couple of books which are considered masterworks of that um, masterworks in that field. And apparently Falconelli is, you know, he this mysterious guy who would appear and then disappear for decades um, after World War II. Nobody ever was able to pin down where he went. Anyway, apparently he went up to Bergier and said, you need to stop messing with the secrets of atomic power. And what he said was that actually alchemists had known the processes involved in making an atomic bomb that this was something known to them, presumably for time out of mind, what, you know, part of that corpus of uh, esoteric, lost, uh, safeguarded, uh, eternal wisdom. And he's like, you guys don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's just like, you know, the alchemists know what they're doing. We understand what this means, but you're just treating this as mere mechanism, as a mere technical problem. Um, and that's not what it is. You need to leave it alone. Of course, they didn't. But that's a kind of an interesting thought. It's like, oh, there's this process that nuclear fission is an aspect of it. But whatever that process is, is this kind of deeper thing that has to do with a fundamentally uh, intelligent or sentient universe. And without understanding the way that this process plays its part in that sentient universe uh you're just like a chimpanzee playing around with an ak-47 you're just like you have no idea what the hell you're doing you have no idea what this is right. for you don't know what it is well, the, to you it's just a technique that that does define the modern mindset that's kind of what marks the, the difference between uh modern chemistry for you know just to be kind of vulgar about it modern chemistry and, and alchemy is that alchemy was always this kind of co-creation, this collaboration with nature to produce something that nature intends somehow, or some aspects of nature intend to produce, and you help it, and it helps you kind of thing. On the one hand, you have that, that, that the alchemical tradition, which is very much tied to uh, the hermetic tradition and all these magical traditions that preceded it, and the modern idea, which is this decision that uh, ratio is the measure of all things, ratio is accessible only to humans and that therefore humans become the masters of the universe and this that's always been the kind of crazy irony for me with modernism because you know galileo in showing us that the uh the moon was pockmarked and that the cosmos was as imperfect as the as the the terrene or the the, the, the earthly sphere and he the the idea has always been well he showed us how humans are meaningless little bits of nothing in this great void but in fact what happens in practice is that humans become central because it's humans that are saying that the world has no meaning and it's humans that have the that are unique uh in their access to the truth about the universe so it's 
you, you know this weird double thing going on in modernity that on the one hand humans are put in their place and on the other hand humans become the ones that put humans in their place and therefore humans are the kings of the cosmos and it kind of all leads up to uh, nuclear fission and Hiroshima and and global climate change and all this stuff that all these consequences now that we're having having to deal with uh, our hubris is biting us in the ass so to speak right and um, that there might have been something to what the alchemists were saying when they spoke of needing to recognize these other intelligences and needing to work with them uh, because to ignore them or to to banish them from the, our fields of inquiry was to commit essentially commit a sin against the universe and that we couldn't possibly uh, come out of that unscathed. This seems like a good opportunity to turn our attentions now to sin. 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 Before we before we talk about sin, let's talk a little bit about our, our respective uh, predispositions when it comes to this topic. Because I grew up as a Catholic and I still consider myself a Roman Catholic. You know, I've I've wondered about the idea of sin for a very long time, and it's a it's a concept that's preoccupied me f throughout my life since I was a child. Uh, I got the fear of hell put into me when I was very, very young. And um, and I still believe in, in something like hell. <laughs> I don't know if I believe in heaven, but I believe in hell. Hmm. Uh, so the idea of sin, the idea that there's cer certain things, certain actions, certain deeds, certain thoughts, certain ways of being are fundamentally at odds with our own best interests. The idea that you could miss the mark and end up in a very dark place is an idea that I, I have a uh, almost a visceral emotional investment in. Huh. Um, and But you come from a different place, Phil. I mean, we talked about this before, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my metaphysical background is weird because my, my, uh, my mom is what you might call conventionally religious, or at least was when I was growing up, and felt that I needed to go to church and read the Bible because that's what, educated and civilized people do. Um, and so, you know, I attended an Anglican church. My dad, on the other hand, was a hard-banging, take-no-prisoners atheist. Um, and so we had interesting discussions about metaphysical and moral matters around the dinner table. But, you know, perhaps as a result of this, um, and perhaps by disposition, I've just never spent much time thinking about sin. It's almost like a kind of a non-idea. Um, I, I guess my attitude towards sin is sort of similar to that of Pierre-Simon Laplace, a scientist who uh, apparently, maybe this is an apocryphal story, was asked by Napoleon where God was in his picture of the cosmos. And Laplace uh, responded by saying, "I had no need of that hypothesis," right. um, and this is and and this is kind of how I've generally felt about sin. Um, it feels like an extra term added to that I don't need because I can kind of look at the spectrum of human behavior and I feel like I understand fairly well when people are um, 
acting well or acting like jerks. Uh, I don't feel I need some kind of abstract philosophical distinction to understand why people are acting like jerks. But it occurs to me in talking about this now how unphilosophic and, and facile an attitude that is. In, in a way, yes. In a way, no. I mean, I think Mach, or at least Ambrose in the story largely agrees with you when he says that most of the things we call sins are actually, you know, you can explain them any number of ways and without having to refer to that concept. For example, he says uh, a man gets drunk and kills his wife, a horrible example. But he, he basically puts down the idea that we could refer to these horrible deeds as as sin. He says sin is something else. And these awful things that people do are just kind of, um, uh, they have a passing resemblance to this reality he calls sin, but they're not essentially sinful. They just participate of this thing he calls sin. But then he says sin is, um, I guess he, he says sin is sorcery. The story begins with the line sorcery and sanctity. These are the only realities. So in other words, he's setting up a world where you have these two poles, this axis. So on one end, you have sanctity, the world of the saint, the one who, who reaches towards God and tries to become one with God. And then there's this other pole, which is the pole of sorcery, which is just as ecstatic, just as transcendental as, the, as, the, as sanctity, but pulls you down towards, I don't know, towards this absolute denial of the good. It also is a form of mysticism. So the sinner, the great sin, he says the great sinner is a rarer creature than the great saint, because at least saints work with tools and materials we are familiar with. But the great sinner is someone who steps outside of all frames of reference and sinks into this darkness. It's a very scary thought, his idea of sin. And it's very ambiguous. It's very hard to uh, conceptualize it, I find, when you think about the story. Well, it's, it's funny. You mentioned the first line of this story. Um, the way Ambrose pairs sorcery and sanctity. Uh, and I find the rest of the sentence really interesting. He says, sorcery and sanctity, these are the only realities. Each is an ecstasy, a withdrawal from the common life. And that phrase, withdrawal from the common life, also appears in that book we were talking about earlier, Hieroglyphics, as Machen's characterization of what ecstasy is. He says a withdrawal from common life and common consciousness. Right. And so, you know, ecstasy for Machen is the keynote of his aesthetics. It's the the thing that separates art from mere artifice. It's the thing that he's after, above all, as an artist himself. And he's looking at sorcery and sanctity as basically right and left hand paths to ecstasy. But the impression I get throughout is that he has a lot more sympathy and that Ambrose has a lot more sympathy and interest in sin understood as a kind of ecstasy, as the left hand path of ecstasy. He has more interest and in, in sympathy in that mm -hmm. than he does in the commonplace social sins, what he calls social sins. And this, to me, introduces the sort of note of fin de siècle decadence to Machen's work, this sympathy for the devil, this uh, sense of embracing wrongness, like accepting that it's wrong, in fact, really announcing that it's wrong. 
but you know there's a a a piece of music that i teach sometimes it's Richard Strauss's opera Salome, which is based on Oscar Wilde's play Salome. It came out in 1905, only three years after Machen's hieroglyphics. And it's a classic kind of decadent artwork. The play and the opera ends with Salome um, uh, kissing John the Baptist's severed head. And um, Herod is so horrified by uh, this act that he instantly commands his soldiers to crush Salome beneath their shields. In the opera, what's crazy is that there's this moment right at the end where Salome has lost it. Like this is, in a sense, a traditional operatic uh, set piece. It's a mad scene, right? And composers have been com had been um, uh, playing with that for more than a century at the time that Strauss wrote this opera. But it's also, it's also a kind of Liebestod. It's like a moment in Tristan and Isolde by Richard Wagner um, where it's an apotheosis of love and also an uneasy mating of the concepts of, of love and death, of sex and death. Um, I like to tell my students, you know, this is a troubling work of art. It's still, uh, you know, more than 100 years after its premiere, it's still a kind of scandalous work of art. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I wouldn't take my kids to see Salome at the, you know, a nice night out at the opera. Um, what's disturbing is not just the scenario of, of, of Salome, you know, kissing, making out with a severed human head, which is fucked up. But it's also that in the music, there are moments where it just, it blooms into the most glorious song where suddenly all of the, the clouds of dissonance clear away and we get this pure, um, uh, music nerds will know what I'm talking about when I say it, like this pure 6-4 chord. Uh, and it just, and the heavens open up. And I was saying to my students, what's disturbing about this is that we're seeing the scene through Salome's eyes. We know in that moment what it is like to sexually desire a severed human head. We're, we're down with that. We are with Salome. And to discover that resonance in yourself is disturbing. This actually plays back to what we were talking about before, that Machen seems less interested in representing the weird than actually instantiating it. And I feel like the, the climax, the, 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 the last scene of Salome is like this. But one other thing that, and the reason I bring this up, sorry, it's kind of taking me a while to get to my point, is um, the feeling that it's sickly and insane. It's wrong. It's capital W wrong, and yet it's beautiful. And I say to my students, what you really feel in this moment, what's really transgressive in this moment where you hear Salome's Liebestod is this feeling of like, if this is wrong... I don't want to be right. And getting back to Machen, I have this sort of feeling when he says, you know, sorcery and sanctity, these are the only realities. Each is an ecstasy, a withdrawal from common life. You know, he's quite firm on the idea that sin exists and that sorcery, this uh, what he calls taking heaven by storm, the illicit, um, uh, illicit attempts to gain what is not ours to gain. The idea that this is um, 
a form of ecstasy, and ecstasy is the sine qua non of art, really kind of sets us up for an idea of like, hmm, this uh, this sorcery, that sounds pretty right. good, actually. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, we sort of lick, lick our chops a little bit at the prospect of yeah. this sorcery. It makes us into goths for a second. <laughs> like, <laughs> What is romanticism? Of which I think decadent, the decadent movement is kind of the final embodiment of, of 19th century romanticism. It's like this, this, this refusal to accept the hypocritical lie of modern rationalism and to say, no, the universe is a war. It's not just a, uh, uh, an empty forum of objects. It's a theater and a war. And pick a side. It doesn't matter which side you pick, but to pick a side, to, to be part of this war is in itself to affirm the universe and to affirm life. So Rudolf Otto developed a, a theory of the numinous or theory of the sacred, which defined the sacred as fascinans et tremendum. So fascinating and terrible. And he said that you cannot have holiness or sacredness without having those two sides, those two uh, facets to it. What is sacred is at once fascinating in the sense that we're drawn towards it and terrible in the sense that it, it disintegrates our normal or, or, or our, our de facto apprehensions, our, our baseline assumptions about the world. It upends everything. So therefore, it is both good and evil in a sense. So the question I'm asking myself is, is, is Arthur Machen a dualist or a monist? He called himself an Anglo-Catholic. He was personally a member of the Anglican Church who believed in God and believed in the importance of ritual and all that. But he also, it's not clear to me, does sorcery come from the devil? Or is sorcery another way to experience the divine? Yeah. That's an interesting thing. Um, reading the text again, what I drew from it was this. True evil is the suspension of natural law, that we've been given this law. And I'm not just talking about natural moral law, like natural ethics or natural morality. I'm talking about the, the laws of nature themselves. These are instances of grace, of God's grace. God has shaped the chaos, the primordial waters, into a world that makes sense. And the fact that gravity holds, that, that, that the tides go up and down, that earth goes around the sun, all these regularities are essential to a world that makes sense and that makes living possible. Sin for Machen is that moment where those laws, is, those laws are suspended. So either the, the moral law in the case of a, a man committing murder or um, in the case of magic where suddenly a dog begins to talk or the rose bushes begin to sing or the things that you rely on, the, those, 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 just those regularities you come to expect that the sun will rise tomorrow, that when those things don't happen, um, this is pure evil. This is the, the, the departure of grace from this world. That the, the gratuitous act by which things make sense when they don't have to, when that leaves and you're left in an absolute mad chaos that, that is also real, that is in, sense, in a sense the, the fundament of reality that which god molded into a world that makes sense i find that very interesting as an idea it's funny because as aficionados of the weird of weird fiction um and i think sort of i don't know like i i think a lot of educated moderns are just generally like this have this kind of 
sympathy for those or even fascination and desire for those moments where reason collapses, where the orderly world turns to chaos. And it's often said that people uh, that that a hunger for chaos will occur to people more often when they live extremely ordered lives, which you know most of us do. We live in a society that is does not actually offer many spaces, many opportunities for the weird uh, to break through. But it sometimes uh, occurs to me it's like actually I really don't want that <laughs> in my life. Like a collapse of those taken for granted, that structuring of the world, when that collapses, it's utterly terrifying. The one thing I can connect it with is the right. um, feeling of having a panic attack. Um, in, 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 like I've only ever had panic attacks in my sleep, which is weird. I didn't know until until I had them that you could that could happen. Um, and for me, what that manifests is. This strange feeling, I, I mean, in more down-to-earth terms, it's a feeling as if I'm being crushed, as if I can't breathe, or I'm being suffocated. That's a very common feeling that accompanies this. But it's almost like that's epiphenomenal. That's a symptom of something deeper, which is touching this current of madness, this feeling of like this feeling of suffocation and 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 total panic at this feeling of right. suffocation it's almost an existential suffocation a feeling that in my sleep in whatever weird dream state that i've been in i have touched down in a world so profoundly alien and inimical to myself a, a world um utterly indifferent to myself or any creature like me um a, 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 an aspect or dimension of existence that is just radically other i mean i mean words are kind of failing failing me i can't conjure the the nightmare i can't i can't make you feel that right <laughs> and, i mean and, and and this is getting back to this idea like that's what Machen wants to do he wants us to feel that but there's this sort of feeling of like vertigo of just being for a moment in a weird half dream state as i'm waking up uh suspended above an abyss of absolute madness of 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 nothing making any sense whatsoever and it's absolutely fucking terrifying it's the it's the most scared i've ever been in my life for a time in my 20s i had serious panic disorder and i had a, a series of of panic attacks and that was the way you describe it is right on i mean it's hard to to find the words to describe an experience like that but I remember looking at the radiator in my apartment at the time in Toronto and seeing it become a kind of uh, a kind of doom machine. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I remember like everything, everything. There was no solace. There was nothing anyone could say that could help me because I could see the truth. I could see that the deep down and it wasn't like life is meaningless is that the meanings yeah. of this world exceed me completely that there's something in it that is so it wasn't just an indifferent world I was experiencing it was an, a world that yeah. that that despised what I thought it was and wanted to show me that it was not that 
and you were right. People seek out these these peak experiences where they the 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 normal you know structure dissolves and we're exposed for a moment, hopefully in a safe way, in a safe place, to something a little bigger. So we we look at we go and we 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 take ayahuasca or we drop acid as kids or we or we go on a roller coaster. You know, we put ourselves in situations where where you know the 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 the, the normal formula is broken and we experience something a little bit more exciting, a little bit more mysterious. But then it can when it actually happens or when you go too far or when you fall out completely, when there's no magic circle protecting yeah. you while it's happening, it can be it can be very terrifying. And um you know, the word panic comes from Pan, the god Pan, the horned goat god of the wilds, of the pure, wild madness of nature. And uh, when shepherds would behold the god Pan, they would go insane. And the word panic comes from this this phenomenon that of, of, you know, of shepherds going mad after seeing Pan, because you can't see Pan. And the, uh, the other thing is that the word Pan in Greek means all, to see the all, mm -hmm. to see the whole thing is to go mad and the when Otto talks about fascinans and tremendum he he's talking about these these uh these precincts that are set up by a, a healthy civilization i would argue where you can get a glimpse of the relativity of your assumptions about the world and yet at the same time remain safely within them so that you can go back and and that your culture remains in touch with the mystery but what you don't want is a culture that doesn't equip you to face the sacred and just throws you into it without any type of reference, without any type of, uh, of safeguard. And then you end up with um, uh, the absolute panic of the shepherd who's not in the, the polis, but out in the wilds and unprotected and, and encounters this, this thing. So there's this idea in traditional uh, civilizations that... We need to have the, the polis, that the space of civilization is a sacred space that we need to protect and that outside of that lie the wilds and the wilds are dangerous and you don't want to be caught there alone. And you have to have you have to be equipped to deal with it and you need one and you need other yeah. people to help you. And this is definitely something that the modern world lacks, um, which is maybe one reason why panic disorder is so freaking mm -hmm. widespread today. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. yeah, it's like we've we've decided that we don't believe in those magic circles, right? Right. In the the triangle of art that you use to conjure a demon in, and, or the the circle of protection that the magician works within, we don't believe in that stuff. Um, right. Superstitions of a, uh, an ancient and foolish age. We still, however, are inhabiting the same world that those foolish ancients right. did, but without protection. Um, Except perhaps through art. I mean, one corollary of what we're talking about is art itself. And perhaps this is a, how the decadents thought about it. The art itself is something of a magic circle. Like I can go to the opera and I can see Salome and I can safely experience something of real madness, of a, a derangement, of a derangement of the senses. And, um, and then I can gather up my coat and my things and I can go home. Yeah, that's um, the, and the kind of an idea of catharsis in art that the, it gives you a, a feeling of the absurd and then allows you to go back to a world that makes more sense. It, it allows you to embrace your illusions. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, when Salome came out, there was there was it was a scandal and a lot of people were very distraught by it. And so even art can cross a line some with some people. Um, and I think it should. Yeah, but 
you know, this, but we need to be equipped to be disturbed. And I think that we live in a culture where we are, our, our assumptions and preconceptions are protected. And um, a lot of people are very reluctant to have their beliefs challenged in any way. Um, no, sure. Right. So, and, and one of the example, the idea of sin, I mean, there's nothing more, I mean, who, who still believes in this except people on the extreme right, you know, who would believes in the idea of sin? Um, and I wouldn't say the extreme, but the right. Yeah, and I, I'm an exemplary modernist, uh, modern from that point of view. I, I, like I said before, I, I always thought of sin as a hypothesis for which I never had any need. Yeah, but you could make an argument that you need a concept of sin in order to have moral thinking at all. It's easy for us now, still living off the, f the, the fumes of a religious civilization, to pretend that you can just be moral without any beliefs, that, that just moral behavior is just rational behavior, but it's not. In fact, we all know that rationalism can, can dictate all kinds of awful courses of action. If you think in a purely rational way, well, then there's really no basis for thinking morally at all, uh, I think. I mean, some, some people would argue with that, and we could have the argument. But the point is that all kinds of awful things are done today that are, you know, legal and perfectly acceptable. And yet you can make, you could easily make the, the argument, or at least you could easily feel that these things are fundamentally wrong, like 21% interest rates on loans, you know. But we, there's no basis for it because we've we've turned over moral thinking to the legal establishment. There is no conception of sin at the same time as um, sin continues to exist in our minds unconsciously. We have no way of thinking about these things in a way that makes sense. Sin is still there, but we have no name for it. We have no way to, to, to pin it down. It just kind of proliferates like a cancer. The problem, as you point out, is with the lack of this kind of transcendental moral horizon, everything just becomes a question of like, what can you get away with? Or like, how, what can you get a lawyer to argue? And it's just a question of what you're able to make stick in a kind of uh, legal context. And so likewise, you know, with like things like the idea that relationships, you know, wooing, uh, like dating, um, suddenly becomes hemmed on all sides by a code of laws where it's just sort of like every action that you take, like, I don't know, like putting your arm around your date's shoulders in a movie, like you need consent for each step. Um, that is, uh, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, pundits are always like, oh, it's political correctness run amok. And, and, you know, what it really is, at least in the terms of our conversation, uh, is an attempt to find a judicial framework for moral intuitions. And so, like, what you just end up with is an endless series of rules, but that's not, and, and ever proliferating rules, many of them contradicting one another. Um, I mean, the process is corrupted from the beginning because ultimately all of these rules simply become a question of, as I say, what can you, what can you make stick? You know, what you, can you get away with? Um, but also the sheer size of this like legal apparatus, uh, you know, the spectacular cellular growth, a cancerous growth of this sort of parasitic legal framework or parasitic on our actions um, is 
seems like almost a kind of an irritable response of a collective social organism uh, to the lack of some kind of inner um, inner barometer, some kind of inner measure that it used to have. It doesn't have it anymore. So you have this kind of fantastic overproliferation of legalisms. And, you know, that's so that's all the legal side of it. So the, you wonderfully described there. There's another side to the sin thing today, which is, I would say, the medical side in a world that refuses to relieve to believe in the reality of evil as an external reality, a cosmic reality. Uh, evil acts become pathologized. They become uh, diseases. And this is Jung said this and Hill, James Hillman repeats it in his work. It says when the gods are denied, they show up as diseases. And uh, mm, that's a great line. Yeah. And, and the idea is that sin becomes a pathology. So uh, in the cases of certain forms of, of sexual deviancy or what used to be called sexual deviancy, there's a, there's a we need to recognize that this is just the way this person is and need to be cured of it instead of they need to take responsibility for their actions or whatever. Like there's, there's this total abdication of the idea of moral responsibility. There doesn't seem to be a recognition that, that the human being has a capacity to choose. Um, this is, I'm not, I'm not articulating it very well, but there does seem to be this idea that, that sin is a disease, that a serial killer is a sick person. The minute someone commits uh, a mass murder, we look for the pathological reasons why that would be instead of just seeing that evil has its place in the soul in every soul and everyone is capable of being evil it's not just the sick people it's everybody and uh this is what jung called you know recognition of the shadow you need to recognize that the devil exists in all of us because the devil is part of the world right zizek again has this beautiful comparison of the ways in which uh we used to function and the ways we function now so for example on a Sunday morning, it's time to go for a visit to grandma's. So you tell your kids, in the old days, you tell your kids, uh, okay, kids, uh, get ready. We're going to grandmother's. We're going to your grandmother's place. And the kids would complain, we don't want to go. And then you'd, you know, the father or the mother at the time would say, you're going to shut up. You're going to put your nice clothes on. You're going to get in the car and you're going to be polite. And I don't care how you feel. You owe it to your grandmother to go and do this. You know, today, uh, Zizek says the, the the strategies change. So now the kids complaining about not going to their grandmothers. Now it's understood that the kid is going to grandma's, right? There is no way, even today, when it's time to go, we know that we're going to get our kids there no matter what. But our strategy now is to 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 you know kind of get down in front of the kid and say, "But your grandmother loves you. She wants to see you. She loves seeing you." Um, she is basically to let the kid know that they are wrong for feeling this way not just for wrong for acting a certain way but the feeling itself is 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 wrong that they should want to go to their grandmother so it's not just necessary that you go because it is as inevitable that you'll go as a kid now as it was back then but it is, it is now necessary that you feel like going or else you're pathological well in a weird way it reminds me of um a very well-known argument that Michel Foucault made uh, about Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon. So the Panopticon was an idea for a prison that the English utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham dreamed up. I'm not sure if it was ever built. But his idea was that you would have all of the prison cells arrayed around a central column where the jailers would be. And the jailers would be able to see the, the uh, prisoners, but 
the prisoners could never tell whether they were under observation or not. And Bentham's idea, which I think is a pretty reasonable one, is like people will act differently when they think they're being watched. And if you don't know ever when you're being watched, if you can never really know, you just know that sometimes you're being watched. Foucault's argument is that this has the effect of turning you into your own jailer, that you end up doing the jailer's work for him. So, I mean, the panopticon, I guess the idea is that you would hardly need to staff it because you would have a whole bunch of prisoners who are constantly, because they're constantly modeling their behavior in the direction of this authority that they're imagining, the the authority that they imagine then becomes this internalized authority. They internalize their jailer and they act in the way that this internalized voice of authority would have them act. And we're saying something similar here about the difference between, you know, dad saying like, you'll get in the car and like it. Um, and the more modern style of parenting uh, where we want them to really like consider um, their feelings around the, mat- the matter, uh, what we're doing is asking the, 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 I almost said students, asking the kids to become their own parents, right? We're, we're, we're creating a little avatar parent that we're then projecting into their skull, and they'll never not have that little, that little inner parent, tell, you know, monitoring their behavior and telling them they suck. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Instead of having a transcendental horizon outside of ourselves, and that's the thing, whether it's real or whether we just imagined it, um, either way, we're projecting some kind of sight of moral authority out of ourselves. And it could be the Abrahamic God, it could be the gods, plural, if that's the worldview you're, that you're working within, whatever. But the point is that, uh, or it could be the Tao, but the point is that, you know, in the in the sort of capitalist modernity, that transcendental orientation is replaced by a kind of... Um, radically imminentist one where the site of moral authority is located in each individual and we've given up on the idea that there are some kind of uh, except for the to me like flimsy fabrications of um, sociobiology we really don't have a mechanism to explain how moral insights or moral intuitions can um, bear upon different people, right? Everything sort of emerges from the self. And so that's how we end up in this place where feelings, people's like, oh, you hurt my feelings, people's subjective experience becomes the arbiter of whether an action is ethical or unethical. It's hard to see actually how it could be otherwise.
just to get back to Machen and, and the decadent movement of which Machen was uh, a figurehead for a time in the 1890s, you know, along with Wilde and Aubrey Beardsley and others. It's been described as an, an immoral or immoralist movement that these people wanted the rejection of all moral values and a celebration of cruelty and all that. But on another level, I th you could you could describe it as a very moral movement that it's a movement that's looking to recognize evil uh, in order to affirm the distinction between good and evil. Yeah, uh, and I, I certainly think that's what Machen was up to. I certainly think that Machen believed in the good, but knew that to have faith in the good meant to appreciate the reality of evil. And you couldn't have one without the other. And there's this, um, this attempt on his part to plunge into the depths of, of sin in order to recognize its reality and then from there to be able to... Uh, to, to to conceive the world in a, in a morally appropriate way. Uh, I'm not saying that he intended his art to be a form of therapy. I just think that his fascination had a basis in moral and not immoral thinking. And uh, I think the same is true about Nietzsche. And I think the same is certainly the same is true about Oscar Wilde. And even uh, J.K. Wiesman, who, who wrote uh, Against Nature, the kind of like ultimate decadent mm. novel. Um, I mean, he converted to Catholicism afterwards. And he, he in, in his introduction to Against Nature, he says at the end of it, um, he says, uh, one of my critics, and it's a, it's a later edition, so he's reflecting on the initial release of the book, and he says, uh, one of my critics said that there were only two paths for me to take. It was either, either the, the, the barrel of a gun or the foot of a cross. And he says, I chose the foot of the cross. Wow. You know, and, and he, he said, I chose the foot of the cross because I got myself to that point where that decision had to be made between do I want to live in a moral universe or do I want to face the consequences of an actual immoral universe? And uh, it's an interesting uh, place to be in to, 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 to bring yourself at the ultimate logical end point of, of the worldview you've been offered to see what's really at stake in that worldview. And I think that it's, there's no way to deny that we are at a point in human history where we need to make a choice. Either the universe is moral and there's purpose or there is none. And if we choose no purpose, we have to face the consequences of that choice. You know, there's this kind of spirit of antinomianism in culture, uh, a spirit of thoroughgoing negation, um, a kind of fuck everything attitude, which we celebrate. Uh, punk, the um, fact that punk, after all these years, uh, 40 goddamn years, we have been celebrating punk as this kind of glorious transgression and subversion, even though at this point somebody who's doing the punk thing uh, it might as well be like a Civil War reenactor. I mean, they're just like kind of <laughs> going through the motions of stuff that people did ages ago. Uh, and yet we have, a, especially in academia, where the number of worshipful studies of the punk ethos just issues forth in this stanchless flow. Right. Um, you know, we, we celebrate these as it were, official expressions of transgression and subversion. But again, it's just, we can do that from a basically safe place, right? 
Right. There are some people who take it seriously, like G.G. Allen. Uh, well, what happened to him? He died young, right? Um, uh, you know, burned himself out. He at least faced the same choice uh, as Husman, you know, the, the barrel of a gun or the foot of the cross. And he chose the barrel of the gun. And, you know, people will sort of glorify that choice as a, uh, a morally superior choice. But at the same time, there's something I keep feeling it's just sort of like, yeah, but if you really had to come face to face with that, there's very few of us who can really hang out there. There's very few of us who really have what it takes to, to, to just dwell in that realm of the absolutely abject. I'm not expressing this at all well. What am I trying to say? Um, you know, just modern letters is very much, you know, the modern intellectual and artistic scene is and has been for decades now very much taken up with ideas of transgression and resistance. But... The thing about that is, is to really make yourself at home in the chaos. There's very few of us that have stomach for that. We have this official ethos of transgression. But I feel like, no, we like it that there's other people, artists, who transgress for us. Like, we outsource that shit. <laughs> you know, I don't want to have to actually live Gigi Allen's life. I can consume his transgression vicariously. The thing is that Alan made a choice and, and it's the, it's the choosing that people refuse to do. So we worship these transgressive figures. We worship them because they went where we can't go and they made a choice and their choice. The, the, I mean, you are what you worship. If you worship people who face a meaningless world and choose the barrel of a gun, then that is that becomes the apotheosis of your world. That becomes the point at which this world uh, is justified. It is justified at the moment of suicide. Yeah, there's, there's a choice to be made there, and it's it's the old problem like hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way, as Pink Floyd put it. We we choose instead to retreat into the mediocre. The kind of maudlin every day instead of of making a choice so i think that our respect for the transgression has a place just like machin respects the sorcerer the problem is this this refusal to choose on an individual level because i mean ultimately it comes down to individuals we each have to make a choice and all of these this talk about religious traditions and 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 belief systems they bear on individuals and the choice we each have to make. And this is what Kierkegaard for one was all about. You as an individual must make a choice. You must choose what this world will be for you and you must live by that choice. Are you gonna throw the dice? Are you going to do something in this world? this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. 
Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.